morning. Isn't it fun to hear God at work in our church family, get little reports and ideas of uh, all that's going on through you, and as God works in, uh, in fun ways and big ways and small ways, uh, it's awesome to uh, see each of you this morning and know that you're a part of it all. So my name's Derek. Welcome to Faith Church. We're going to uh, spend some time studying and, and learning from God's Word here. Uh, as we get going, I want to know who has had an experience in your life where you've moved to another city? Okay, plenty. I know we've got, we've got plenty of, uh, we've probably got some, you know, born and raised Dallas people. I know we do. But we've also got plenty of you who have experienced a move. And I want us to uh, kind of put ourselves in, in some of these major life decisions. If you've moved, what factors went into that? Do you remember back to that? Do you remember what you thought about, what you had to consider, maybe who you interacted with before you made your move? Um, if you're not so sure you can relate to a move or it's been a long time, I know anybody else ever made a big decision in your life? Okay. Anyone ever have a big decision coming up? So what are those things? You know, they could be related to a relationship. They could be related to a job. They could be related to um, college choices. They could be related to many things. Uh, big things in life that come up. You've either made those decisions or perhaps you're facing one now. And I want that to be fresh in mind as we go to God's word this morning is what, what decision are you facing perhaps and what factors go into that? What do we need to consider? How, how do we go about proceeding forward in that area? Grab your Bibles, open to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is in the Old Testament toward the beginning of your Bible. If you're flipping through pages because you're hoping you come to Ruth, that's what I do. Here's what your, Joshua judges Ruth. So if you see Joshua judges, you're close. If you see First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you're a little too late. Go back. Joshua judges Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings toward the beginning of your Bible in the Old Testament. And you know what? There's a table of contents at the front of your Bible. It comes in great handy, and you should use it whenever you see fit. Okay, You do not need to know where every book of the Bible is, but if you memorize them all when you're young, then it just sticks up there. Ruth chapter 1, uh, and in a moment we'll get started here, but I wanted to give you a chance to turn there, either open your Bible to Ruth 1 or open your device to the Bible app and find Ruth. The other thing is, before we uh, get into the passage of God's Word itself... Who is the king of your life? <laughs> That's awesome. I, what's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I heard it. I heard it. Sorry. I heard it already, you know, being whispered, muttered as I said that. Who is the king of your life? And we tend to know the Sunday school answer. Jesus. In fact, the Bible is, agrees with us in 1 Timothy 6 on the screen. Our great God is described as being the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, man, it seems like a generic question, perhaps, in Christian circles, in church circles. Who is the king of your life? Perhaps it's one we could just rush right past and think, oh yeah, I got this because I'm going to go with the Sunday school answer. Or, or is Jesus our Sunday school answer because it's only true on Sunday? Ouch. 
and, and don't worry, I'm directing this message from God at myself this morning as well. We, you and I, tend to live our lives with ourself on the throne. You and I tend to go through our lives putting ourselves in charge. The true king, the only king, the great king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, blesses and gives his favor to those who wait on him, follow him, trust him, obey him, live for him, know him, seek after him. But living as if I am king, you, if we default to living as if we sit on the throne, I think if we're honest, we know that doesn't go well. There are consequences to our actions. Yet, as we stumble through life, putting ourselves on the throne and experiencing the consequences of our actions, there is also so much grace. We have a God who loves and pursues and offers his grace. And we're going to see all those things in this true story, this true historical story from God's word that we're going to study this morning and the next four weeks the story of Ruth, but the story of other people. In fact, this morning, we really, it's not even really about Ruth yet. This story, this true historical story from God's word, we are going to see that when we live like a king, when we live like we are king, like we are the only sovereign over our life, that things don't go well, that there are consequences for our actions, and yet, so much grace. So you with me in Ruth chapter 1? You ready to follow along in your Bible? Keep your finger in the text as we hear from the Lord. So let me read. Uh, I'm going to read five verses. That's all we're going to cover today. I'm going to read the, the five verses all together, and then we'll take a closer look at some of them. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's a good thing that Trevor mentioned the sunshine is coming after the rain, because it will, but that's where we are today. That's where we're going to settle in and hear from God today is those five verses. 
Ruth chapter one, verse one starts with, in the days when the judges ruled. And I think it's just, just let me set the historical context just a little bit for you because I think the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, is more than just putting a date on the story. This isn't the writer just telling you when it took place. There's so much more under that phrase. In the days when the judges ruled. So yes, it does put a date on the story. Approximately 1300 to 1000 BC would be this period of, of time when the judges ruled. By the way, the, judges, the period of the judges is described in a book of your Bible called? Good one. Judges. It sets you up, right? Sets you up for that one. We all look really smart. 1300 to 1000 BC. In terms of the biblical story, those of you that have had a chance to know some of the biblical story, perhaps you haven't yet, uh, where this takes place in the biblical story is, is after the Exodus, after God has freed his people from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and then not only that, but then was God was going before his people in the conquest of this new land, and he delivered them into this promised land. This is after that. And then there's the, yeah, there's the conquest, and God brings his people to the um, promised land. And then we get to this period of the judges, when the judges ruled, when, when God's people had leaders that were referred to as judges. And if we were to summarize the entire book of Judges, or this period of history called the period where the judges ruled, we might see something like this repeated cycle. God's people rebelled went against God, did their own thing. In response to that, God acted in judgment. There were consequences for their actions. Then people experiencing God's disfavor, not experiencing his blessing, were urged and turned to God in repentance to turn away from their old selves and to turn to God. And, and God would then after they repented, send another deliverer, perhaps another leader, another judge to give some period of rest for God's people. And then I mentioned it's a repeated cycle. So guess what? It starts over. God's people rebelled. God judged. People repented. God sent a deliverer to give a period of rest. God's people rebelled. God judged, etc. And then it got to the point where they didn't even repent anymore. So how are things working out for God's people going their own way? The later chapters of Judges, which, by the way, the book of Judges in your Bible is just the previous book, right before we get to Ruth. The latter chapters of the book of Judges is a downward spiral of a people who had lost their way. A bleak and dark time of disobedience among God's people. In fact, if you turn a page backwards and look at the last verse of the book of Judges, or We'll also put it on the screen. The last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's the context. There's the setting in which we begin this story this true historical story from God's word about Naomi and her family and eventually about Ruth and Boaz. But there's the setting, there's the historical context. So that verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a what? Famine. 
There was a famine in the land. Now, God's law, God's Old Testament law, is pretty clear that there are blessings of God, favor of God for obedience, things like victory over your enemies and abundance of crops. But God's word in the Old Testament is also clear that there are lack of blessings, withholding of blessings, even curses for disobedience, and those would include things like being defeated by your enemies and a famine or, or lack of food. And so here's, here's a story that begins in the promised land in a town called Bethlehem, a family of Elimelech's family in Bethlehem. They live in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Israel, God's people, was, was the, the, the promised land that God gave his people was known, to be, or was known as a land flowing with milk and honey. It was, it was promised to them to be rich in what they needed. And here we have in, at this time, because of God's, I mean, because of the people's rebellion, we have no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine in the land. And so the famine causes um, Elimelech and his family to wonder some things, to ask some questions, perhaps. Have you ever hit a difficult spot in life and it caused you to wonder or to ask difficult questions? The famine causes this family to wonder. And they start to ask questions. Well, man... There's no, there's no bread in the house of bread, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and in this case, they even start to go, well, where should we go? There's no bread in the house of bread. And what is bubbling up inside this family? And when there's no bread... In our house of bread, so to speak, when our lives encounter difficulty or suffering or consequences for our rebellion, what bubbles up inside of us? Is it, oh, hey, it's time to take matters into my own hands. I got this. I can figure it out. I'll find a way around the problem. There's a famine here, so I'll find a way around. Is that what bubbles up in us? Or does it come natural to repent of our rebellion? And to trust God. And to continue following him and continue depending on him for his provision. Verse 1 continues. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn. Let's make a mental note of the word sojourn. And we'll come back to that later. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ethrophites of Bethlehem in Judah. So this family is from Bethlehem in the promised land. God's people have been delivered from slavery, brought out of Egypt, brought into the promised land. God has shown them that that is where they are to live. And specifically, Elimelech's family was called to live in this area of the promised land, Bethlehem. This is where God had put them. So we should at least wonder, is it best to leave? 
Is it, is it a good idea to leave? So we know where they are, where they have been put, where God put them in the promised land, where he called them to live. Now let's consider where they are going. They end up heading over to Moab. You can see on the screen, on the left-hand side is the promised land, where you know where Jerusalem, and then near that is Bethlehem, where this family was from. And now, because of the famine, they consider going elsewhere, and they consider, and they actually do head over to Moab. What, what do we know about Moab? And what do we know about Moab specifically as it, appeal, as it applies to God's people? What would God's people have known about Moab or should they have taken into, con- into consideration when they were considering a move to avoid a famine? What do we know about Moab? One thing we know about Moab is that the ancestors of the people in Moab originated, that people group originated out of a sinful, incestuous relationship. Their king... The the king in Moab had been known to curse Israel or hire other people to curse Israel. The people of Moab had been a stumbling block to God's people, seducing God's people toward sexual immorality and toward worshiping false gods. Sound like a place to move your family? Uh, one of the, as I studied this week, one of the commentators wrote that in going to Moab, Elimelech's family was certainly turning their back on the Lord and turning their back on the people of God. So, what factors go into moving? What do we take into account? When you face a major decision in life, whether it's to move or not, whether it's uh, to Another significant uh, decision in your life, a relationship or, a, or an upcoming change in your life, where do, we, where do we turn? What do we look for? Yeah. Do we, do we play king of our own lives? Do we do what's right in our own eyes? When we act like king, when we act like we are the only sovereign, we make choices as we see fit. We look, overlook implications of our decisions. We overlook the consequences of our decisions because we've put ourselves on the throne. So instead, to whom do we go for guidance? What, not only what factors are we going to take into consideration, but whose counsel are we going to seek? Is, is Jesus... Our Sunday school answer, or is Jesus the only good answer? Is Jesus our Sunday school answer because we're supposed to say it, or, or, or when our lives hit the bottom of the pit, or when we face a, a seemingly insurmountable situation, is Jesus our true answer to who is king of our lives? I... Uh, I recently met a couple, a few of us here recently met a couple, and it was really encouraging. They were, um, they were looking to move, and they were driving all over the Willamette Valley, checking out different communities. And as they were doing so, they came and looked and talked to and met people at different churches. I was so encouraged 
that in this major life decision of moving somewhere, that they, had, that they were at least showing that small indicator that they were seeking God's direction in this decision. Because I'm not saying, did you catch me? They haven't moved yet. Maybe the most common, if we're honest, result, I mean, situation would probably be you move somewhere, and then you look around for a church, and you hope you find one. And I was so encouraged by this couple that, that seems to be seeking God in their decision by factoring something as important as a church family into their seeking God for what community to live in. Elimelech and his family. Let's get back to Elimelech and his family. And not just to think about Elimelech and his family, but to think about ourselves and what we would do. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. May you and I live like that's our name. Amen? May you and I, church family, faith church, live like our name is my God is king. My God sits on the throne of my life. May we live like that. And yet, who was Elimelech looking to in leading his family? A famine, a famine in the land, this obstacle that they came across, this uh, this lack of blessing, this withholding of God, a famine should have driven them to their knees. A famine should have caused a family in, in God's, of God's people to repent of their sin, to go, we've rebelled, God is withholding his blessing, we need to confess our sin, we need to turn away from that life, and we need to run back to God because he is the only king. That's what a famine could have or perhaps should have caused in Elimelech, in Elimelech's family, was a repentance of sin and a desire to trust God and to be where he had put them. I'm not saying that in our modern day you can never move, but we want to be where God has us, right? We want to be where God wants us. And in this case, God had made it clear where his family was to be, and we've seen some things about the places where they were going, So perhaps Elimelech was leaning too much on doing what was right in his own eyes. Let's pick up, let's look back at the middle of verse 2 again. Wait, let me see if I'm in the right spot. Yeah, picking up verse 2. Talking about Elimelech, his wife Naomi, the two sons. They were from Bethlehem in Judah. Then verse 2 continues. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Interesting word, and remained there. Let's go back to verse 1. It said that they were going to go to Moab to do what? What word did we make note of in verse 1? Sojourn. What's the word? So- Anybody want to tell me, help me out what the word sojourn means? Passing through, a temporary stay. So in verse 1, because of the famine, this family set out to be to stay in a temporary place, to stay temporarily in a place where they could find food. But now in verse 2, it says they went to Moab and remained there. When I looked up, in, uh, when I looked up what the uh, original language here, the Hebrew original language that this was written in, this word remained could also be translated, they continued there. They, they existed there. They remained there. So... Does this still sound temporary? 
if they remained, continued, if they were existing there, does that still sound temporary? I don't think so. It doesn't seem like their temporary plan has panned out. And yet, does it seem like they're all in, like they're going to live there? It doesn't really seem so either yet. It seems, it seems like they're just sort of in between, existing. As I studied this week, one of the commentators wrote, like so many of us, this family now seemed to be drifting through life without any grand plan. Like so many of us, this family now seemed to be drifting through life without any grand plan. I mean, there's, there's reasons for some of the phrases we have, right? The path of least resistance. The familiar. The comfortable. The path of least resistance can often be easiest. We sometimes say the road less traveled. Well, why is it the road less traveled? Because it's hard. So, So what are our choices sometimes in life? Comfort and convenience and familiarity. Oftentimes the path of least resistance is the easier road. But the road less traveled is tougher. The Bible teaches us that the path that leads to life is hard. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And now look what word. They lived there about 10 years. The way this is written... This is, Ruth is a spectacular piece of literature, by the way. It's excellent, excellent writing and storytelling. And there's a, and I think we should note this progression of words from sojourn, I was going to sojourn, but then I kind of just existed there, and then they lived there. Was that original decision of where to go? Was that original decision important? I think that original decision of where there's a famine. What do we do? Where do we go? Do we stay and trust God or do we try to find a way for ourselves? I think that original decision is incredibly important because they thought their original decision was, I'm going to sojourn. It's going to be temporary. And that turned into just existing in a place where they shouldn't have been. And that turned into settling in a place where they were not experiencing the favor and blessing of God. They had opportunities to go back. But it was easier to stay. One of the, again, one of the study, guys, study books I was reading said this, tellingly, this family's choice was to stay. They still rated their prospects more highly. In other words, they thought more highly of their prospects in Moab than in Judah, in the Promised Land. They felt more at home in the land of compromise than they did in the land of promise. Ouch. They still rated their prospects more highly in Moab, that they would do better, that things would go better. They still thought that things would be better in Moab than they were in in the Promised Land. They still felt more at home in the land of compromise 
than in the land of promise. They still felt more comfortable making their own way, finding something that seemed to work in their human eyes, even if it meant ignoring God's clear direction. So then we get, really quickly, we'll, we'll look at another major life milestone that comes up in this situation. Staying in this foreign land led to a situation for Naomi's sons. Who should I marry? Here we are, we're of God's people. We're from Bethlehem. Now we're in Moab. We already heard what we know about Moab. And now these two sons have before them this life stage of, who do I marry? And the text tells us that Naomi's sons took Moabite wives. Uh, On the screen, you'll see Deuteronomy 7. And this refers to, previous to these words, these words refer to people groups that were driven out of the promised land, people groups that had previously um, lived in this area where now God had given them. And God says, you shall not intermarry with them. Why? Because they would turn you away, your sons, from following to serve other gods, and then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. There's some argument here, there's some disagreement about whether this verse applies specifically to people in Moab. But here's what. Even if this verse doesn't specifically say, don't marry Moabite women, the spirit of this law, the heart of this law would be, don't intermix with people that will lead you astray to false gods. And and that's what we know to be true of Moab. So again, faced with a stage of life where they need to marry, do Naomi's sons conform to the culture around them? Here's where we are. There are women around us. It's the easier path. I'll just marry here. When we are faced with a difficult decision, when we are seeking what God wants for our lives, is it, is, do we just, the path of least resistance, do we conform to the culture around us? Do we do what seems normal? Or do we look to God and hear his voice in our life and seek the wisdom of the scriptures to live by? Do we take the easier path or do we obey God, knowing that God has his best for us. So what's Naomi's situation now? So Naomi's situation now is her husband has passed away. Very difficult situation. And yet, Naomi might be thinking, well, but, but I'm okay. I'll be taken care of because I have two sons I live in a culture where I need a husband or I need sons to provide heirs, to provide, you know, provide for the family, to provide, to extend the life of the family. But I, so I have these two sons. Maybe things are going to be okay. I'll have people to care for me. And so 10 more years go by living in Moab. And then we come to verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion, her two sons, died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. If indeed Elimelech was leaning too heavily on living as it seemed best to him, 
if indeed this family had put themselves on their own, the throne of their own life, how are things going for them on the path that they thought best? Naomi's world just came crashing down. She's left without a husband. She's left without sons. Her future is uncertain. She is certainly experiencing a life of suffering. She does not seem to be experiencing the favor or blessing of God. It would be easy to lose hope. said we wanted to tie the thread this morning of a difficult situation you have faced or you are facing. What are factors are going into that decision? Whose counsel do you seek? Is the king of, who's the king on the throne of your life? Naomi is facing extremely difficult situation. It would be tempting to lose hope. I mean, it could be easy to lose hope. You have faced difficult situations, church family. I know you may, you will continue to face difficult circumstances, and, and, it, and it could be possible to lose hope. Now, standing up here, teaching these five verses from the biblical text that stop with her husband and her sons are dead, stopping there is really hard. It's so tempting to tell you to sneak a peek at verse 6. It's so tempting to tell you the rest of the story of the book of the Ruth because, spoiler alert, God works things out for his glory and her good. But don't go to verse 6 yet because this is where we are. This is what life had for Naomi at this point. Someone may have mentioned that there are sunshine coming after the rain, but right now, Here's where we are. We sang some words a few moments ago. Even when I don't see it, God, you're working. So what does God have for us with those first five verses? I think that one of the main things this morning is that this passage helps us recognize that suffering is part of living on earth. That suffering and pain and trial and hardship is part of our experiences as human beings on this side of eternity. I think that it's important that we recognize and come to grips with that God is very much good and loving and active and working and that even our Christian life, even lives desiring to walk with Jesus, will experience suffering. And if that's where this passage leaves us, if that, that's where this passage has Naomi for now, then what does God want to say in that? In the midst of our suffering, church family, in the midst of your suffering, can you trust God? What does God have for Naomi here? What does he have for us? In the midst of a painful and difficult life, can we still worship him? That's what this passage is, 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 is urging us to consider. Let me just read to you some verses from 1 Peter 2. You could turn there if you want, but actually I'd invite you to even just consider closing your eyes and listen to these verses. 1 Peter 2, having, 
he's just been talking about enduring suffering. And then the letter continues like this. For to this follower of Jesus, you have been called. To what? To suffer. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and yet he had to endure suffering. Verse 23 says, when, he, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, enduring suffering, continued to entrust himself to the only one who is just, our Heavenly Father. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So I think one thing that this passage has for us is as Naomi has found herself in life that is very painful and difficult, this passage urges us to consider, can we still trust God? Can we still worship him in the midst of the pain of life? And then, and then the other thing I think we need to consider is how do we make Jesus king? How do we make sure that that sitting on the throne of my life is Jesus, not Derek? How do we make sure that that, that our answer to the question, who is king of your life, how do we make sure that our answer isn't just a Sunday school answer, but that deep down we know every day, hour by hour, minute by minute, that Jesus needs to be our king? Do our lives lives include rhythms where uh, we get pushed off the throne? Do we have things in our life, people in our life, that poke and prod and confront us with the truth that Jesus is king so we get bumped off the throne of our own life? Are our lives engaging in God's word? Are we engaged in communication and talk, in two-way prayer with God so that he becomes king, not me? What other, what other um, aspects of life Do we need to consider, does God need to change in us by his grace what will happen in our lives so that our lives don't just happen to us, so that we don't start by a sojourn and end up just kind of existing and end up living somewhere where we're not supposed to be? How do we make it so that God is king and leading our life and that life isn't just happening to us? We how do we put ourselves in places where the Holy Spirit of God is active so that we can be filled by the Spirit so that we can live for him, hear from him, know what he says, want to obey and be able to follow through with that? Those are, there's, there's lots of ways. It is important to be in his word. It is important to hear from him that way. It is important for God's word to confront us and to push us off our own throne It is important for us to be in prayer. It is important that before we make major life decisions, we we make sure that we are part of a family of God. I was so encouraged by that couple before they moved. They were looking for God to guide their move by considering where their church family might be. And I think we need to do the same. When we face these difficult decisions, is God part of the process? 
And when we face these life transition decisions, how is God part of our process? Are we in the word? Are we in prayer? Are we part of a church family? And I don't mean just part of a church family where there's somewhere we go for an hour. I mean part of a church family where you know me and I know you, where a group of people within the church can really get to know one another, to know and be known, a place that's safe to tell the truth about my life, that I fall short, that I sin, that I go against God, and have a brother in Christ uh, assure me of God's grace and forgiveness. That's, that's where we need to hear from the Lord. That's where we need in our Christian life. And so when we think about how to intentionally pursue God, there's all these ways. And one of them I would urge you is to make the, this church family smaller by not just being here on Sunday and not just knowing it as a, as a, as a big group gathering on Sundays, but you have an opportunity in our life groups to make the church smaller. And our life groups exist, as you see on the screen, for three reasons. Life on life is to spur us to know God more, is to help us grow in our spiritual life. Life on life in community is to give us a family in which we are known and we can know and be known. And life on mission is, is that our, our life groups, we want to increasingly become a place where we are uh, together living out the gospel good news to those around us, where we are together proclaiming Jesus to those who need Jesus. And so, this is just one way, and I'm reminding us of it because we haven't talked about it in a while, to ask for God's help in making sure that Jesus is king of our lives. What are these questions that are facing us? Where, what factors are we considering? Whose counsel are we seeking? And so if, uh, and perhaps it's that you need to get in God's word and be reading, and be hearing from God that way. Perhaps it's you need to grow in your, in your prayer life, but perhaps also you would benefit from joining a life group. Next Sunday evening, we have life group refresh. Uh, we're going to have dessert. We're going to hang out for about an hour and a half next Sunday evening, and uh, life group refresh is open to all of you, those of you who are already in a life group, and those of you who might be interested in joining a life group at some point. Everyone is welcome, but it's a great opportunity um, to learn more about life groups and how God might want to use them in your life. So we'd love to have you there next Sunday. We'd love to have you go on the Church Center app and click sign-ups and let us know you're coming so we can plan enough dessert. So there's information on that info sheet you got on the way in. And there's also, you can go to the Church Center app or you can go to the email you got. If you're not getting emails from us, let us know so we can get you on there. And all those places have instructions on how you can RSVP and let us know you plan to be there. Um, but that's just a great opportunity. So here's where we'll finish. Here's where we'll finish. Hopefully from studying the life of Elimelech and his family, we've seen that uh, doing what is right in our own eyes can go sideways. That there are consequences to our actions. That, that trying to be king of our own life will leave us empty and searching and craving. But Jesus, God's son, the promised rescuer, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And Jesus later declared himself to be the bread of life, the only one that nourishes us spiritually, the only one who can satisfy our spiritual longings and cravings and our need for God. 
Jesus was born in the house of bread. He declared himself to be the bread of life. Church family, we need King Jesus. We need Jesus to be king of our lives. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you sent your son, that Jesus lived and died and rose again. We thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel, that because Jesus lived, died, and rose again, that we too can have life with you. And God, help us to consider Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but help us also to consider Jesus' continuing ministry, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he had then ascended into heaven where he is actively right now ruling and reigning from the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as King of kings, Lord of lords. Thank you that that Jesus is very much alive. Thank you that Jesus is reigning from the right hand of God. Father, help us to see and know him as king of kings, as king of our lives. We confess our tendency to go our own way. We confess our tendency, like a limelech, to do what is right in our own eyes, to solve our own problems, to ignore your warnings, to not seek your guidance. We, God, we confess to you this morning that we fail and go against you and do our own thing. Thank you for your love your grace, your mercy. God, I pray that your grace would abound to me, would would abound to each of us in helping us to make you increasingly king of our lives where we need to be confronted and pushed off the throne of our lives, where we need to confess our sin, where we need to seek you. Thank you for your grace in helping us make Jesus King of Kings, King of our life. We continue now in our time of worship together, lifting our prayers, giving our offerings, lifting our voices in song. May we do this all from just a thankful heart and from a recognition, from a submission to Jesus as King of Kings. Jesus, you will reign forevermore. Will you reign forevermore in my heart, in my life? Will you reign forevermore as King of Kings, as King of our life? In Jesus' name, amen.